Our scripture passage today is from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 9. Hear God's word. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and who, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of the Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country of the east of, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And if you've watched the news at all recently, we've seen the pain in Paris. We've seen the, well, maybe some of us have seen the overlooked turmoil in Beirut or the chaos in Kenya. And regardless of the many of stories that have popped up, we've all been reminded of just how broken our world is, haven't we? And then amidst all of this, we receive a video from ISIS on how they communicate their blessed attacks against Crusader France for being in opposition to establishing an Islamic state where they can exercise Sharia law. It's with this foundation and this background, it's caused many to raise a question that's all too familiar. The question is, is at the heart of the problem of humanity really religion? Is religion the source of bigotry and violence? Is religion really the greatest impedance to tolerance and peace? And if we're going to be honest this morning, we need to answer yes, sometimes. And I'm not just talking about radical Islam. We of all people as Christians know the history of the Crusades. We know how racism still marks a dividing line within the church across the United States or how harsh communication and violent action has been taken in the name of Jesus. And we of all people should admit, repent, and then walk forward in humility. Yeah, but isn't the exclusivity at the center of the claim of Christianity really at the heart of the problem? If you've ever asked that question, you're not alone. I get it. Okay, and maybe that's actually one of the greatest barriers for you still today from following Jesus. I mean, how can one religion be better than another? How can Jesus be the only way? Isn't that arrogant? Because Christianity is very exclusive in proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him, say, Jesus. 
But if we're going to have an honest conversation about this, we need to all admit that everyone is exclusive. No one in here is not exclusive. Even for the pluralist, the person who proclaims that there are many paths to the top of the mountain. If you're a genuine pluralist, you must reject anyone who holds any beliefs with any sort of conviction because within pluralism, your desire is to exclude exclusivity, which in and of itself is a logical inconsistency. But what's even more fascinating than all of that is that the most inclusive religion in all the world is Christianity. I know how that sounds. Okay. <laughs> and believe it or not, at the core of that belief, it should drive Christians to greater humility rather than arrogance. But more on that in a minute, okay? So for example, where's the cultural and geographical center for Christianity? Look with me at this map, okay? Up here where the red is represents where the Christian faith is is the most dominant faith, and that's not meant to communicate any sort of political alliance, okay? So nobody get too excited. Um, <clears throat> when you come to Judaism, the center and has always been and continues to be Israel, with focusing even more on Jerusalem and then the Temple Mount. When you look at Islam, you see that it's North Africa and the Middle East. When you look at Hinduism, you see India is the center. When you look at Buddhism, the center is Southeast Asia. Even with secular humanism, that's predominantly focused in the West, in the West. But when it comes to Christianity, a geographical and cultural center is nowhere to be found. It's nowhere to be found. Anyone is invited in. And the only boundary to be becoming a part of the Christian faith is that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Here's why. We see it at the beginning of our scriptures, we see it at the end of our scriptures, and we see it everywhere in between, that at the core of the Christian faith, we see that God wants a really big family from all people for all people. God wants a really big family from all people for all people. That should rock our world to understand that that's who our God is. And we can't miss this. I love the way theologian A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then he goes on to write, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God, ever. So what if at the heart of who God proclaims himself to be in the Christian faith, we find a God who has always, always wanted a really big family from all people for all people. And not a family, you know, with people who all look the same, who come from the same cultural background or speak the same language. A diverse family. This kind of inclusive God would transform how we engage anyone and everyone. This kind of inclusive God will especially impact how we engage and experience those who are different from us, those who are on the margins of society, and those who are far from us. I'd like to propose this morning that Christianity isn't the problem. But when we come to understand who God is, what he's, as he's proclaimed himself to be, we come to see that Christianity is actually a part of the solution. And over these next six weeks, we're going to explore who 
God is as one at the center of his heart is for all people. He's for all people. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, the first book in your Bible, chapter 12, verse 1. And it's here we begin to see how God starts to form this really big family. And he starts in the most unlikely of ways. God calls the unlikely. The ones we're not expecting, the one, not, not the uh, employee of the month or the most likely to succeed. God reaches out to everyone, but he especially works through those that don't have the intention of anyone. God calls the unlikely. And I want you to think about what happens up to Genesis 12. In Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, we start with a perfect world. Then rebellion hits as Adam and Eve seek to usurp God's right rule over his good world, and chaos breaks in. Then with Adam and Eve's first kids, we find their oldest son, Cain, murders his younger brother, Abel, and the rest of humanity begins to spiral into disintegration. And eventually, God says, enough is enough, which is an absolutely terrifying thought. So a flood covers the world, save one man and his family, Noah. And as his family multiplies, it seems like nothing has really changed for the better. Because generations later, they gather together for this global project called the Tower of Babel with its sole purpose of mocking God and making a name for themselves. And right here at the very beginning of the story, we feel like God just can't seem to keep things together. And one of his biggest mistakes is making human beings. But when we get to Genesis 12, God shows up. God shows up, not that he's been absent, but he lets humanity in on how he's going to now redeem his broken world, how he's going to break the destructive cycle that's been a part of every generation of rebellious humanity. So I want you to imagine some 4,000 years ago, about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, in a prominent city of Ur, Thanks, Google Earth. You're so helpful. <clears throat> this isn't a fairy tale, okay? This is some 186 miles outside of Baghdad and modern-day Iraq. And you can actually still go see the ruins of Ur, Abraham's hometown. But then they left Ur. He left his family. He left his tribe. He left his identity. Many other cultures know this. You find your identity in your tribe and your people and your parents. He left his, many, much of his wealth and his security when he left Ur. And he found a new secure, security and a new identity in the one who has called him to go. And so he walks about 677 miles. Yeah, Google says it takes about 219 hours to walk that, just so you know. Um, and he gets all the way to Haran and Turkey. This isn't a fairy tale. This is what's happened in the history of humanity. And when we get to this point in the story here in Genesis 12, this is where things start to get really radical because not only does God reach into work through humanity after everything else we've done, he picks the most unlikely of couples, Abram and Sarai. We know them by Abraham and Sarah because their names are changed later in the story. But just to show how radical it is that he picks Abram and Sarai, earlier there in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, 
the author of Genesis writes, now Sarai was barren. And just so we don't miss it, right there in verse 30, then he says, she had no child. Emphatic, emphatic. I'm saying it twice. Get it into your skull. This is weird, okay? Not to mention that they're in their 70s. And so God, when he starts this really big family from all over the world, from all people, he starts with a couple who's elderly and a woman who's been barren her whole life and has never been able to have children. And then God speaks. And how does he start the conversation? Genesis 12, verse 1. It's not like, hey, Abraham, hope you're doing well. God just shows up and says, now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Hey, Abe, I know you don't know me from Adam, all right? But I want you to leave everything and everyone you love, and I want you to walk over there. Well, how, how far? Well, just keep going until I say stop. There is no destination. <laughs> just go. And this is how it all begins. God calling, Abraham going. And really, that's how it starts for all of us. Because what we find in the New Testament, that as followers of Jesus, we are now a part of Abraham's family. Now, sure, God didn't call you maybe to go on a road trip this year. But we're a part of this family. And if there's anything we learn about who we are, when we look at the story of Abram, who comes, becomes Abraham, we, we come to realize that the reason that God calls us isn't because we're round one draft picks, Right? It's because no one's expecting it. Us? Him? Her? Really? God picks the unlikely. And you're one of them. <laughs> you know what that does? That should really obliterate any sort of arrogance that anyone has as followers of Jesus. Anyone. We don't go into the world because we've got all the answers and because we're God's faves, Okay? We go because we've been called and we're the least likely so that God can be seen most beautifully through the ones that no one expected. So now we go with humility. But when God shows up here, let's be clear, he doesn't just call because a call without a promise will lead to drudgery or fear. But when God shows up, he promises the extraordinary here through the unlikely. You and I as human beings, we live in a cursed world we see in Genesis 3 because of Adam and Eve. And right here in Abraham and Sarah, we see new creation work beginning to take place through a new man and new woman. God is going about his redemptive work right here, right with Abraham. So after God calls Abram to go, look what he says in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. God's plans, you could call it his mission, are always anchored in his promises. Always. And look, God isn't evasive. He has spoken and been very clear on his redemptive process. He's also not fickle. What he says he will do, he will do. I want you to notice, now, good theology is usually anchored in good grammar, okay? <laughs> and what we discover here, who's doing the action? Who's the subject of these verbs? I will, I will, I will, I will, God says. And as we seek to read our Bibles thoughtfully, rather than just jumping in and jumping out, we need to understand 
that the most proximate application and fleshing out of this promise is in the nation of Israel. When you read the Old Testament time and time again, the firstborn son who has much prominence, which God will work through, is Israel. And then when you get to New Testament, Jesus points to this, Paul makes it explicit. The son of God, the true son of God, the perfect Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, that when we place our faith in him, we now become adopted into that family. So to be clear, God has you and I in mind in this passage, Jews and Gentiles alike in mind here when he says these words, which not only removes arrogance, but it should remove any sense of fear and despair. With growing threats of violence, wow, with the financial cost to actually bring about change, the collaboration through the diverse crews of folks, when we think about political polarity, all of these components, fear so easily can rise within our hearts, can it? And although God works through the unlikely, to be clear, he works through human beings, it is God himself who promises to bring about his promises. Which brings me comfort when I go and look at another promise that sounds a lot similar, very similar to what God says to Abraham. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who will? Christ will. That brings me comfort such that when tragedy strikes, we don't wallow in despair. But we also don't go to the other extreme and end up in this naive optimism. Instead, we find ourselves in a sturdy hope in God's promises that he will do what he said he will do, not because of the promise, but because of who promised it. Because God gets what God wants. Which leads us to our last point, why? Why does God want a really big family from all people for all people? Why Abraham? Why Israel? Now, why all of us? We can't miss this. Look with me again in chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see it? Why Abraham? Why Israel? Why us? We have been called and blessed so that, don't miss that hinge phrase, that's going to give you the purpose, that gives you the reason, we may be a blessing for everyone everywhere. Not a particular people in a particular place, but everyone everywhere. This is a global enterprise that God cares for all people. You ever wonder why we're still here after we started following Jesus, why we weren't beamed up the moment we became Christians? It's to be the avenue of God's blessing to all people, regardless of their race, their class, regardless of their ideology, their political affiliation, their nationality, their orientation. This is who we've been called to be, a blessing. And you're a part of that blessing. You were called to be a gift. And you can be. And maybe, maybe you're wondering how I got here, okay, with the application. This seems like some pretty wiggly exegesis or understanding of Scripture. How did we get there? Well, look at how Paul, who's Jewish, who's an expert 
in the Jewish scriptures connects the dots for us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. And if you don't get there, it's up on the screen. Now then, that, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would testify or justify the Gentiles by faith, which is everyone who isn't ethnically Jewish, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you actually jump over to verse 29 in chapter 3, Paul says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Did you catch what Paul's doing here? How he's clarifying God's promise made to Abraham. And you notice what word he uses to explain all of that? Gospel. Gospel. This is good news that ultimately lands and points to Jesus. We're going to see later on in this series when we walk through the genealogy found in the Gospel of Matthew. It will be fun. Okay, trust me. When we walk through the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew makes it explicit and starts with Abraham. And he goes to show that Abraham is Jesus' great, 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 great grandpa. So that if you are found in Christ, you are now found in Abraham's family, regardless of your lineage. God seeks to bring a blessing to all kinds of people through his son Jesus, that he'd always had a plan for in Abraham. You see, God really, he really wants a really big family from all people for all people. And he wants to work through human beings like you and I to do it. So just like Abraham, we need to heed the call to go. We need to hear our call to be a part and so pursue the blessing of all people. And for some of you, step one is actually to join the family is to join the family. You see, God wants a, a, a family from all people, and that includes you. How? By stepping out in faith in the same way that Abraham did. It's not just belief in God. James says the demons believe in God and still shudder. But it's also a believe, believing God. You see, faith isn't some intellectual exercise exclusively. It does engage our intellect, and we should be thoughtfully wrestling through theology, to be sure. But when faith is genuine in faith, when it's trust, it causes us to lean into that which we trust. When we believe promises, it shows up in how we live our life. If we trust Jesus, we'll trust him with our life. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect but we lean into the promises of the gospel and we strive and oftentimes struggle to trust them. And to join his family, you must, must first have a conversation with our heavenly father in prayer. It's gotta at least start there where you come and you admit your cosmic treason against our creator God, that you have both sinned against him and are a sinner in need of his grace and then you ask for forgiveness that is based in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, where God is proclaimed both just and that he condemns injustice and also the justifier, as Paul says in Romans 3. And when we embrace that forgiveness, we now seek to live a new resurrection life here and now. And if you have and desire and have pursued prayer 
to begin that relationship, come and talk to me or one of the pastors. We'd love to continue to walk you through next steps. But join his family. Secondly, we can't just join his family. As members of the family, we're now called to love this family, love this family, this diverse, multicultural, cross-generational family. Historically, the church is the first place the church is the first place where people were crossing borders to be with one another, where people, where people sought to eat with one another, which was a huge cultural communication as to how you accepted one another. The apostle Paul confronts Peter because he's only eating with Jews, and Paul says, no, 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 the church is now for all people, Peter. Cut it out. And so the church, we seek to grow in understanding each everyone's culture and worship together. And love. This was foreign to the rest of the world up to the point of the church. And this isn't some surfacey sentimentality focused towards an end goal of unity. You, the Tower of Babel was a project of unity, but it was towards destruction and injustice and completely disowned God as their creator. That's not what we're shooting for. Unity in and of itself is not a value, but unity focused towards God's centeredness is what we're called to as God's people. And that's why it's so powerful. And that's why the church fought to be together because they knew down to their very bones we were family. Family. Regardless of where you've been, in Christ, we're family. And for God sought out the, he sought out the unlikely, the different, you and me. And he calls us to live into that image and go and do likewise. You know, with all the talk lately, it's really been kind of shameful, I think, on, are we excited about the nations coming to Kansas City? The villainization of the vulnerable refugees? What is going on? Are we excited about caring for the vulnerable? Do we have a heart for the unlikely, for those who are unlike me? Those are the ones that God is so often pursuing to be a part of his family. Are we also actively remembering that God's family is all around the world? If you're a follower of Jesus and Jesus is really the most important thing about your life, more important than your family, Jesus says, "He, <laughs> I've come to bring a sword. Not that we wield the sword, but often the sword will be wielded against us where he will separate mother and child, brother and sister because of the commitment to Christ exclusively and supremely. If that's true, you know you have more in common with a Christian in Beirut, in Palestine, in Israel, in Beijing than you do with the person who lives in the loft next to you who isn't a Christian and has all your same cultural language and habits. If that's true. And when you become family, it changes everything. Jesus changes everything. So are you loving this family? Are you welcoming this family? How is that shaping your conversations around this global crisis? And lastly, join the family, love the family, but also grow this family, okay? We get an opportunity to be a part. God's invited us to be a part of making this really big family from all people for all people. He said he's going to do it, so how are we working and living to be a part of that? Maybe it's sharing Jesus with someone, at your workspace, okay, that you haven't had the courage to share yet. Maybe it's with your family over Thanksgiving. Don't be the stereotypical, you know, Bible over the head person, okay? 
And we sit in that tension, don't we? Because we are called to share our faith, but don't come argumentatively. Don't come trying to dominate. But what if we took Genesis 12, 1 through 3 as our schema, where we sought to bless those we engaged with? We still shared the truth of the gospel. And sometimes that may mean rejection, but also to do so in a way to bless. Also, for the past two years, we as a church, you know, we've been really wrestling through how to think and love and partner globally in the world. Um, and as the world's more connected than ever, <clears throat> I feel like our, we, we haven't always connected the dots on the best practices of engaging globally. And so, so now, after some thoughtful congregational and pastoral engagement, we've continued to develop some best practices and continue to grow a more robust understanding as to healthy and flourishing global engagement as a church. And so at this time, to help us as a family, I'd like to invite Sarah and Lance up here. We're going to get some stools, you know, because that's what we do around here, I guess. Come on up. Oh, look at you guys. Thanks. Perfect. I'll take that one. Great. <clears throat> and Sarah and Lance, they're going to help us in, in just understanding what's been going on. They're both a part of what's called the Global Partner Team. Um, and there's a, a team together um, who's working. That's Katie and Lance Knight. That's Ray and Leanna Chan. That's Eddie Wright. That's Sarah Ramey, myself, and Marta Berguera. So, so with us together, we've been wrestling through this, even as a global partner team. But we have some even bigger structures. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how some of these structures have developed at Christ Community, about this team? Yeah, so definitely. There's eight of us that Gabe mentioned who are actively engaged in helping grow this partnership, not only with Project Kirche in Berlin, but also with um, potential new local partners <coughs> who are engaging at the global level. So our team meets about uh, six times a year to actively think about how we're going to do that. Uh, we're committed to faithfully growing those partnerships over time, not only um, financially, but also a mutual partnership. How can we give to them and how can we um, actively engage them to be part of us as well? So there's a lot of structure that we're putting to it. Our goal as a team is to think strategically about how we can um, engage in global ministry and do that effectively so we can serve others around the world. Awesome. So tell us a little bit um, as to why you're a part of this team. Lance. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, for a long time, I've been very passionate about uh, cross-cultural work and um, it, working with internationals. And after I graduated from college, I actually spent six months in the Philippines working with some church planners there. And that, in that time, it just really confirmed for me that, you know, that that passion was, was genuine for working with um, across different cultures and working with people of, of different uh, ethnicities. And um, so when Gabe asked me if I would be interested in joining this team, you know, it was kind of a, since I came back from the Philippines, it had been like just kind of searching for me, like, hey, how can I be involved with cross-cultural work here in Kansas City? Hmm. I'm living here. And so that was just kind of a confirmation for me, like, hey, this could be an opportunity to join um, a partnership that is working to um, spread the gospel um, outside of just Kansas City. So. Awesome. So with that, why do you think, because I know you're excited, but why, why should anyone else in here be excited about this? Um, well, I think after just getting to know Alex and um, talking with him, 
you know, he's really shared some about the church there in Berlin and how, um, especially when the church started, there was a lot of people coming that were not Christians, but they were very interested um, in the gospel and very interested in what Alex was sharing with them. And so they started inviting their non-Christian friends to come to church even, and I think that's kind of interesting because usually non-Christians don't invite other non-Christians to church. And so just the fact that Berlin is very, um, there's a lot of unchurched people there, a lot of people that do not know the, um, about Jesus really at all, and a lot, of, a lot of atheists there. And so I think just the impact that um, Alex is making is just really exciting that we can be a part of that, hmm. and not only be a part of that, but also learn from him in the mutual partnership, to, and just learn from what he can teach hmm. us about hmm. our church plant here in the downtown area. Excellent. So, so in terms of next steps, what do we need to know about next steps, and how can we be praying together as a church and doing this well together? Well, I think the next big thing that we're really trying to accomplish here is establishing a really good foundation to our relationship. Like with any good friendship, uh, the best partnerships form over time and with really knowing and understanding that other person. So we're committed as a team to growing that partnership with Projekt Kirche, with Alex and his team over there. So our next biggest steps are to really develop that relationship with communication, sharing prayer requests, asking them to share their prayer requests with us so that we can then subsequently share that with all of you to be actively engaged in praying with them and for them. Um, so our next biggest steps are really prayer. Um, we have to be actively engaged in prayer for multiple things, um, specific things that Project Kirche needs prayer for, but also um, to pray for our engagement, to understand what that partnership is going to look like. We're in the very beginning stages of this. Um, we're kind of figuring out what this looks like. We're wading through the waters and figuring out what works and what's not going to work. And so we need prayer and wisdom and understanding how to best love them and to faithfully serve Poyet Kirche and our other global partnerships that we want to establish. Mm -hmm. And we're really looking to actively engage in individuals and organizations here locally who are actively involved in global ministry. So we need prayer and wisdom and understanding those things. And then in 2016, we hope to have really tangible ways to come together as a congregation to do things um, with our global partners. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Sarah and Lance, for your time. Let's give them a round of applause. And if you have um, any further questions, we're going to be spending time over these next six weeks continuing to dive into this partnership and how we're seeking to do this together as a church. Also, you can find Sarah or Lance after the service or anybody from the team, uh, for that matter, to continue to dive in. Now, for me, what I'm really excited about why we're in this partnership, why we continue to grow in this partnership is because I think we need a greater imagination of what God is already doing around the world. We need a greater imagination on how he's working through people who are very different than us. And I want my kids to see that. I want my family to grow up seeing that. I want us as a church family to continue to understand that God's work is a lot bigger than us. And that's really healthy and we need to remember that God's family doesn't just look like us either. Um, now, Germans may look the most like us, maybe, than some of the other places in the world. But still, um, we, we find ourselves remembering that God's family is from all people for all people. And it's not going to look just like us. You know, I look forward to the ways that we can meaningfully be a blessing and also receive blessing when you enter a partnership like this and across global uh, interactions. Because really, God wants a family, a really big family, 
from all people, for all people. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of that family. And when we understand that, we can be a part of the solution rather than the problem, avoiding arrogance, Lord willing, and also not pressing for uniformity either. I mean, what if, what if we weren't designed to have d- various religions that keep us divided? But what if? What if God has called us and cultivated and created one true religion, one worldview that exists for all people to bring us together? What if that's always been at God's heart and his very center, his exclusivity for our unity and for our joy? That's what God did when he came. He entered our world, which was really his world, and he entered on the margins, spent time as a refugee, and then he went to the cross to pay for our sin. And as Paul says, while we were yet enemies, that's when Christ died for us. And he offered blessing and honor and life and life abundant. None of us belong. We're all strangers. We're all aliens. We're all refugees. We're all orphans who are looking for a family. And God pursued us and he's promised life to us. God wants a really big family. Will you join it? Will you love it? And will you help it grow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, Thank you for your family. It's so much bigger than this campus, so much bigger than Christ's community, so much bigger than what you're doing in this metro, in this nation but you're doing it across the world in ways that proclaim your good name. And we admit that we are the least likely. It is truly by your grace that we get to be a part of your family. And so thank you. And so it's out of gratitude we ask, Lord, that we would now be a people who give ourselves away. We would now mirror your generosity and engaging and receiving from our global neighbors. For God, we are not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And we have much to learn. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.